Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you that you have sent your spirit into the world and into our hearts. We thank you that he has been given to bring us conviction, to help us to see the light of your glory in the face of Christ as we read the words of Scripture And so tonight we pray for your help by your spirit to open our eyes afresh to see glory, to be changed as we see glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the news broke from London, the events of last night, and terrible news again of acts of terror in our land uh, many killed, many injured. I imagine we have a, had a whole range of emotions. I imagine we felt again a sense of shock and of grief, and perhaps of, of anger. But I wonder also this time, and it's been the third time, hasn't it, in a number of months, I wonder if this time we also started to feel a sense of despair. We've got a wonderful police force. They're doing all they can. But in the face of this kind of evil working this way, what can stop these kinds of people? Will it happen again and again and again? For those of us who are Christians here tonight, we'd say, well, yes, despair. But we have the gospel that brings wonderful hope into a dark world. And so we cling to the gospel and that's enough. But, But again, what difference has the gospel made in our world? We've had the gospel in this nation for centuries wonderfully, but we look around our country and it's as dark as it's ever been. Can the gospel really make a difference in this country with these hearts, with this kind of evil? Is it enough, the gospel? It is possible for Christians to despair when we see the state of the world around us. I remember feeling a similar sense of despair about the impact of the gospel when I was in my second year University, the Christian Union had bought enough Bibles, actually Mark's Gospels, to pass out to every undergraduate in the university, some 10,000 copies. And the plan was to pass one copy to each undergraduate and then to put on a series of talks for over a fortnight explaining Jesus. And I was a Christian, I had been for some years, but this was the first time I had been involved in something this big. And I remember on a Monday morning heading out, clutching a, a bundle of gospels in one hand and some flies to some talks in another hand, and I was genuinely excited about what would happen next. Two weeks later, I felt very differently. Only a few of my friends had actually taken the gospel. None had come to any of the talks. And at the talks, there were some people, but, but only a few hundred compared to the 10,000 who I wanted to come to the talks. And as I thought about the impact of the gospel on my university, well, it seemed very weak indeed. Oh, for some people, dramatic impact, but in the context of of the whole university and the whole world, it seemed very small. And the next time we had that kind of week, let me tell you, I was less excited and less enthusiastic. There is a real danger for us Christians to lose heart when it comes to the effectiveness of the gospel in the context of the world we're in. The gospel seems to make so little difference. 
And if that's how we feel tonight, we are not the first people who are tempted to lose heart. Look at verse one of our reading from 2 Corinthians chapter four. Paul the apostle says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Picture a marathon runner who has lasted so far 18 miles, but now they've hit the wall. They are shattered. And in their brokenness, they wonder, is it worth carrying on? I think I might just sit down and rest. That's the the sense of verse one, losing heart. But Paul says, we do not lose heart. He wouldn't have said it, I think, unless he had been tempted to lose heart. To give up on gospel ministry, to do something easier like stacking shelves in Tesco is just less hassle than this gospel ministry. Is it worth all the hassle? But he says, verse one, we, we do not lose heart. And so tonight is all about not losing heart in gospel ministry. And by gospel ministry, I mean any context, any moment when we talk about Jesus with other people. It could be with our our friends and colleagues as they digest the news of London. It could be um, with our families, parents, or or grandparents, with our offspring. It it could be in our small group or or in a one-to-one over coffee. Anywhere we talk about Jesus, there is a great temptation that we lose heart that the power of the gospel, the message about Christ, won't do enough to bring about transformation and change that we desperately long for. And so the temptation is to give up, to lose heart in gospel ministry. Remember in uh, Corinth, we've, we've seen why they might give up. You think of the apostle Paul. We've heard that he's, he's a weak apostle in the eyes of the world. Um, when he speaks, loads of people are put off. They smell death. They turn away in disgust, and they walk away thinking they want nothing of what he has to offer. At the same time, there are around in Corinth what Paul calls the super super apostles. We've been seeing how these are people who preach Christ, yes, but a different kind of Jesus, not the one Paul preaches. And the kind they preach is a kind that sounds very attractive to everyone. The ratings are up for the super apostles. And for these Corinthians, you can imagine that they've got two options. Do you want to stick with Paul and his gospel message about Christ, the one which puts loads of people off and is hard and weak, or do you want to go for the the easy gospel, which lots of people like and seems to be bearing much fruit? As this word is peddled, lots of people buy it. Well, Paul would say to to himself, to the Corinthians and us here tonight, we do not lose heart with the authentic message about Christ, Paul's message, the gospel message. Paul won't, and he would have us not lose heart. And the reason is there in verse one. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. This ministry is the ministry Paul has been describing for us in chapter three of 2 Corinthians. I think of a friend of mine who I used to know at school. Um, He wasn't a Christian a nice guy, but, but he talked and lived and dreamed like the world. He wasn't a Christian. And um, after school, we lost contact over the years. I didn't see him for, I guess, a decade. And then one Sunday, 
randomly, I was preaching at a, a small church somewhere in the Midlands. I walked into the front door of the building, and there was my friend who I hadn't seen for years. And I, I said to him, what are you doing here? He'd be up in Edinburgh, remember. He said, I, I work for the church. I, I'm a youth worker. And he started to describe to me what had happened in his life since school. He'd become a Christian, you see. The Lord had opened his eyes to see the glory of Christ. He had been moved from, life, um, from death to life. He had been moved from condemnation to righteousness. He had been given a hope that doesn't fade, eternal hope. And now here he was joyfully serving the Lord full time. And uh, it was just wonderful to, to sit and talk to them afterwards and see how the Lord had been at work in his life. Genuine transformation. He was glowing with the joy of the Lord. I couldn't believe it. But look at... Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just before our reading tonight. Paul says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's Paul's ministry in a nutshell. And that, in a nutshell, is what has happened to my friend from school. He had had his face unveiled to reflect or probably better contemplate the Lord's glory in the gospel. And he had been transformed. He was becoming more like Christ. He had a new hope, a new confidence. And it is a glorious ministry to see someone's life so transformed. I wonder if we've ever seen that in a friend, a family member, seeing the impact of the gospel on their lives. This is the ministry Paul is talking about, a glorious ministry Last night in London, we saw, again, how some people think they can change the world through terror and fear. Their mission is to bring people from life to death. But Paul is the opposite. He is all about bringing people from death to life. And there is nothing else anywhere in the world that can do this kind of transformation. The only power that can bring a dead person alive is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This ministry and so because Paul has this ministry by God's mercy, he does not lose heart. And he, he would call us not to lose heart tonight with this ministry that we've been given. Tonight in chapter four, he wants to show us what it will look like for us not to lose heart in gospel ministry. And as we dive into chapter four, this is our focus now. Three points. First is this. Don't lose heart in gospel ministry. Be confident in the truth about Christ. That's verse two. Paul says, verse two, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Some time ago, uh, Lorna and I needed to buy a new wardrobe and all the ones that we were looking at online, the, the nice wooden ones, were, were very expensive. And um, we were sort of losing hearts. And, uh, but then we came across one website selling these lovely wooden wardrobes. And they were at a very reasonable price. And you know you're middle-aged when you get excited about a cheap wardrobe. <laughs> and uh, we were just about to press the buy button on the website when we happened to notice the small print down the corner of the website, and it gave us the dimensions of the wardrobe, and they were tiny, like little hobbit wardrobes. <laughs> and um, this website had been very clever. 
because they'd taken some wonderful pictures of this wardrobe, but they placed the wardrobe next to kind of Hobbit furniture in sort of Hobbit-sized rooms. And so in the context, they look proper and big and massive, but they're actually tiny. They hadn't, they hadn't lied, but they had distorted. They had sort of warped the message. The, the point was to get a, a quick sell. It almost worked. And I think that's something of what's going on in, in verse 2 when it comes to the gospel. There is a great temptation in gospel ministry to not to kind of tell outright lies about Christ, but to distort the truth about Christ in some way in order to make it more attractive to get the quick sell. And it's, 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 it's understandable because often we're, we're talking with people we care about deeply. Maybe it's a, a close friend of ours or, or a family member, and we're desperate for them to accept the message about Christ. We'll do anything we can. And so in the temptation, we, we make it different from what it really is. We distort the reality to convince people, you see? Very tempting to downplay the truth or to overplay some benefit in order to make the message more attractive. But Paul would say, don't lose heart. Be confident in the truth about Christ. Our job is to set forth the truth about Jesus as simply and as plainly as we can. I think of my uh, physics teacher at school. He was just brilliant at taking a complicated and confusing subject, A-level physics, and, and making this complicated thing accessible and understandable even to me. And um, because he was so good at it, I actually went on and did engineering at university. He's taking something profound and deep and making it plain and accessible. That's the picture of verse 2. It's not that we preach a kind of simplistic gospel about Christ. No, we preach it in all its richness and fullness, but we make it understandable and clear to people that they can understand what we're saying. But it's that clarity about Christ that also makes it hard. Remember, as people here, they smell an aroma that so often is the aroma of death to people who are perishing. But for others, it is that clarity, the truth about Christ, which is what is needed to bring about life and a glorious transformation. Nothing else will do. And so if we distort the gospel or we use deception, we're actually moving people away from where the power is. It's the truth about Christ that will bring the transformation we long for. And I wonder if, if in verse 2 Paul's referring to the super apostles and their message, how they distort the truth about Christ in order to win popularity. We can guess what they're doing from the context of 2 Corinthians, how they were distorting the message. A couple of thoughts come to my mind reading through 2 Corinthians, uh, things that we uh, might well fall into danger of doing ourselves. Uh, how might we distort the gospel? Well, um, the, the super apostles, I think, they were promising too much in the present. You know, they were saying, come, follow Jesus, and your life will be good and positive. You'll pass all your exams, and you'll get your dream job and marry the perfect spouse, and it will be happily ever after now in the present. You see a kind of a suffering-free gospel now in the present. But remember back in chapter 1, Paul was very clear that the pattern has always ever been suffering first, then comfort, suffering first, then glory. It was true for Christ, it was true for his apostle, and it's true for any who trust in Christ, that in this world, before 
the new creation. We will experience suffering. Heaven on earth only in the new creation. Which means that when we come to describe the gospel to our friends who we long to become a Christian, we must be very clear that to turn to Christ, it won't make our lives pain-free or suffering-free. It is glorious, but only in the new creation will we have that kind of experience. I wonder also if the super apostles were guilty of saying too little about sin. I say this because in chapter 2, Paul talks about his painful letter he had to write. It was was a letter about sin. It was a letter of rebuke. In chapter 7, he explains that he wrote it because his, his desire was repentance. But it was hard to write. It was hard for Paul to talk about the sin of the Corinthians. It's hard to call people to repentance. You can imagine the super apostles just glossing over those sorts of topics. Just putting them under the carpet. The sin doesn't matter. We won't even talk about those kinds of things. It's too awkward. And sadly, there are many churches today who have the similar approach to sin. Oh, we'll talk about the positives, not the negatives. Paul had to, uh, in, in many ways, talk about some things like sexuality as one of the key topics in 1 Corinthians their sexual behavior, he had to call them to repentance in that area. Many churches today won't talk about the rights and wrongs when it comes to sexual behavior. And yet, to proclaim Christ, the truth about Christ, it means calling people to repentance. Things have to change. There's a cost. There's a a controversy when it comes to Christ. And so to present the truth of Christ plainly, to be confident about Christ, it It'll mean talking about sin. I know it's hard. I, when I talk to my friends who aren't Christians, I, I, I kind of, I'm fearful of going there with them, lest they, they turn away. But Paul would say, don't lose hearts. Be confident in the truth about Christ. Well, next, our second point is this. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged by results. There's been lots of discussion in the news this week about the Arsenal manager, Arsene Wenger, he's been in the job at Arsenal, I think, for over 20 years. And people have been trying to work out if the time has come for him to retire and to move on. And um, as people ask the question, one of the key issues has been, well, how successful has he been as a manager? And they look at the number of cups he's won and league titles he's managed to accrue over the years. And they base those kind of results on whether or not he should stay, whether he's a good manager. You see, results decide success. And that's how the world works in so many ways, isn't it? We decide if someone's any good or not based on what they've achieved. It's very easy for Christians to think the same way about the gospel. We invite a friend and they come to church and we think we must be doing something right. Or we have a chat with another friend at work and they think we're crazy to be Christians and we think we're doing something wrong. But Paul would say, don't be discouraged by results. Why does he say that? Well, look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The glory of Christ is revealed through the gospel. Whenever the gospel is preached, there is glory. When we talk faithfully about Jesus from the Bible, it is like a huge beacon of light shining in a Dazzling brilliance into a dark world. 
It's just often people cannot see the glory. The God of this age, that's Paul's way of speaking about the devil, Satan. He is personally at work in this world to stop people seeing glory when they hear about Jesus. How does the devil veil people's vision? Well, I think the the way that Paul talks about him is is significant. He says, the God of this age. And, And I wonder if the point is that in this context, the particular work of the devil is to make people preoccupied with the stuff of this age, the, the here and now, the present, the, the physical, the material. And if you can get them living and dreaming and glorifying in, in the stuff of this age, then when they hear about the glory of Christ, they won't see any glory at all. You see, if people think that life is all about the, the loft conversion or the hobby or the exam results... If the devil can get people thinking that way, then when they hear about Jesus and they hear about the offer of forgiveness and the offer of eternal life and the offer of being moved from condemnation to righteousness, they'll see no glory at all. They'll be thinking rather about their lost conversion. You see, the God of this age is very good at blinding people to true glory and making them transfixed with things that have no glory at all. And being aware of this unseen enemy helps us to keep going because it explains why so many don't believe. There's nothing wrong with the glory. There's nothing wrong with the message. The problem is blindness. And so Paul would say to us, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged by results. This also means that when people reject Jesus, it's not because... They won't see, it's because they, they cannot see. There's a difference. Uh, think of a, of a young child who's been naughty, and um, the, the parent needs to tell the child off, and they, they bring the child forward, and often they say, you know, look at me, look at me, because they, they want to make contact, and they want to engage. And you know what the child's like, they, they know they've done wrong, and they, they don't want to look at the parent, they're, they're looking around everywhere but the parent, and that's a kind of willful turning away. They can, but they, they won't, you see? That's, that's one kind of turning away. But here in 2 Corinthians, it's different. It's not that people are willfully turning away. It's they, they cannot see Jesus because they've been blinded. Now, I know elsewhere in the Bible, there's also a willfulness about people's rejection. But here in 2 Corinthians, they cannot rather than they will not see. And I think this helps us because when we talk to people and we explain Christ to them, and they, they, and they cannot see. It gives us compassion, doesn't it? It makes us gentle with them. We ourselves, at one point, were like them, unable to see. It's only because of God's mercy we have this ministry, after all. And it helps us to remember that the enemy is not the person we're speaking to. It's not like we have to somehow bulldoze them over with our brilliant logic to convince them about Christ, as if they're the problem. As one person said over lunch this week on Wednesday, actually, our dear dialogue partners, our friends, they're more like prisoners of war. The God of this age, he's the enemy. They are caught up in this terrible battle. And I think remembering this helps us to speak um, 
clearly but gently, to go on speaking clearly and gently without losing heart based on the results, not discouraged by what we see, understanding the unseen enemy. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged by results. Finally, as we finish, don't lose heart. Rely on God's power, not our own. It is easy to wonder, isn't it, if we're in this kind of battle with an unseen enemy, the God of this age, the devil, who is so very good at blinding people's eyes. Surely he must be at work somehow in the events that we've seen happening in London and Manchester and elsewhere, blinding people terribly to the glory of Christ. We think, well, what, what hope do we have? All we've got is this book. Well, look at verse 5. Paul says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In other words, I think Paul is saying we, we will not resort to preaching human wisdom. No, Paul, he will stick with the plain, clear message about Christ. It is all he has. There's no plan B. This is the one plan. This book, the Bible, his message about Christ, it is what he will stick with. And yet, it can feel as if we're being sent out to try to conquer a castle armed only with a pea shooter. We've just got this book, Paul's message about Christ. It's how I felt during that CU events week, heading out with this little pile of gospels and a world that didn't see glory when they looked at Christ. And all I had was this gospel and no one wanted to hear about it. What hope do we have? Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. These words are just truly extraordinary. Let's just uh, unpack them. Paul, I think, is talking about his own conversion. Remember the story in Acts as he was on the road to Damascus. He was zealously opposed to Jesus. In fact, he was going to persecute the followers of Christ. And his eyes were darkened to the glory of Christ. But then on the road, the Lord broke into his world. And he was dazzled with the glory of Christ. God opened his eyes. He could see the veil was taken away. And he was transformed by the glory of Christ. That's verse 6. But of course, this isn't the first time God has stepped in to turn darkness into light. Verse 6 starts by taking us back to Genesis 1, when God created the world, when he brought light out of darkness. Think of our sun, 15 million degrees centigrade. It's uh, 93 million miles away from Earth, and yet if we look at it, it still blinds us. It is so brilliant in its white hot heat and God made that sun out of nothing with a word it was just darkness before he spoke that's how powerful God's word is when he speaks and Paul's point is look in creation God made the sun out of nothing and in new creation he transformed Paul the darkened apostle into this one who could see the glory of Christ and God has a brilliant CV when it comes to bringing light out of darkness that's the point of verse 6 How does God bring light out of darkness? Well, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ, and Christ is revealed in the message Paul preaches. 
And so here's the extraordinary point. This book, this message about Christ that Paul preaches, it is the gospel that pulsates with an energy and a power and a glory, which is like a a nuclear reaction. It's white, hot, and dazzling, and it has this remarkable power to do unbelievable things in people's lives. It is all the power required to strip away the veil and open blind eyes. This is where the power is, in the gospel, in the message about Christ. And so Paul would say to us, rely on God's power, not our own. I wonder if this means that uh, when we speak to people about Christ, uh, we would do well to get out of the way and to get them onto Christ as soon as possible. Oh, I don't think we mean to get in the way, but um, we hear it sometimes when people tell their testimony about how they became a Christian. And uh, it, it can sometimes be just a list of things that they did. I, I did this, then I did this, then I thought this, then I read this book, then I discovered this, and now I'm a Christian. I, I, and I get why they say that, but, but actually, let's get people on to Christ as quickly as possible. It's what he has done in our hearts and lives. I think I mean, we, we must be careful when we we persuade people regarding Christ not to rely on, on human arguments or philosophy or wisdom. We want to get onto Christ as quickly as possible. For as people gaze at Christ, they are beholding God's glory, and God's glory is what transforms people from darkness to light. We do live in a dark world, and faced with the size of the darkness. We've seen it again, haven't we, last night? I, I fear we'll see it again. It is easy to think that this gospel message is not enough to fix that kind of problem. Well, Paul would say to us tonight, do not lose heart. The truth about Christ found in these pages is sufficient to open any blind eye and to transform any life from darkness to life. Let's pray. Father, we do confess tonight that uh, we do at times struggle with the temptation to lose heart as Christians in gospel ministry And particularly when we see just how dark this world is. And at times, Father, we feel like we've been sent out into battle with with hardly anything. But Father, we thank you that your word tells us just what we have been given. That it reminds us about the glory and the power of gospel ministry. And so please help us to be a people who go from here tonight and boldly speak the plain truth about Christ to anyone and everyone. And Father, please, would you use us by your spirit to do remarkable things, to bring about great transformation, to bring people from death to life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.